today's episode, our guest, Andrew Robinson, the CEO of Skyward Specialty, talks about taking a company public. Yesterday was his first business day after their IPO. He also talks about diversity, equity, and inclusion and how he's made that cornerstone of the culture at Skyward. And he also talks about change management and the impact of technology in his business. So fascinating conversation, really engaging, interesting stories, uh, really just really fun show and really enjoy having Andrew on. So stick around and enjoy. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of The Enlightened Agent, the podcast that brings you conversations with top insurance professionals and industry leaders. My name is Jason Keck, and I'm joined today by Andrew Robinson, the CEO at Skyward Specialty. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jason. Pleased to be here. So, Andrew, we have two podcast series going on right now. One is focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion in insurance, and another called uh, Champions of Change, focused on change management. Uh, both super important topics for the industry. And you know, given your role as CEO at Skyward Specialty, I thought it'd actually be great to have your perspective on both. So if it's okay with you, we'd love to cover both topics today. Terrific. Like like to be the convergent uh, CEO. So yeah, for sure. Appreciate it. Before getting into that, I know today is your your first working day post-IPO for Skywards. So congratulations, first of all. Thank and you. And would love it if you could maybe tell our audience a little bit about yourself, the company, and, and this exciting start to the year that you're having. Yeah, for sure. So Skyward Specialty is a well, it's a, a 16-year-old company, although we rebranded in 2020, which uh, really, I think, is probably the, the period that is the reference point for who we are today. We are a company of about 450 employees, uh, $1.1 billion in, in direct written premium. We operate through eight specific underwriting divisions that are all, in their own right, specialty-focused. Yeah, and the company, as you noted, you know, we became formally a public company last Friday. So that was a Friday the 13th, by the way, which is a, actually ended up being a great day to go public. We had a, a very successful offering, terrific uh, community of investors who were excited about our story. We launched and, and the company's uh, stock in the aftermarket of the launch has, has performed really well. And quite honestly, it's a it's a company that I think um, that's just a metric of of a company that has a great deal of momentum, strong growth, good earnings, and I think importantly, as it relates to you know the content of of this podcast, a company that is very focused on supporting you know our employees and the communities that they live in. That's exciting. It's been a while since I've worked at a public company, and I've only been in the insurance industry for the last five years, all on on the private side. What does it mean to be a public insurer versus a private insurer? Like, how do things change? What changes on uh, your end? I'd like to think that our North Star as a company doesn't really change that much. Obviously, you know, the practical realities is that you know, we have more flexibility in terms of access to capital to support our growth, which is a wonderful thing. You know, most certainly, you know, there's a stature of being a public company as, on the insurance side in particular, where balance sheet actually matters. You know, on the flip side, obviously, public you know investors can be a little bit more short-term focused than 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 a private investor, and that brings with it a you know a slightly different kind of discipline that you have to be you know you have to be uh, very tuned into. Obviously, we haven't yet been through that, um, but uh, but having operated inside of public companies in the past as you know as a senior executive, I'm uh, you know I'm familiar with that. 
But I, I would like to think that it really doesn't it doesn't change much in that you know we're a company that takes our responsibilities uh, very seriously, and that includes uh, in all regards of not only just stewarding you know our investor interests, but stewarding importantly our employees and their interests, our customers and our distributors, and and none of that really changes here as being a public company. Cool. When I started Broker Buddha, you know the goal was to build a great company. Build a billion dollar company, have a good time doing it, right? And I, I still aspire to take the company from, you know, where we are today into being huge change in the insurance industry and take it public one day, right? I, yeah, I'll tell you a quick story that that echoes that, which is when I joined, I said something just, you know, kind of off to the side, which was uh, I said we're building the company we always wanted to work for, and that saying took root inside of our company. To the point that a few months back, we got out of our office space in Scottsdale and we we took another space that was much more consistent with, you know, kind mm. of the, the blended, you know, the blended kind of at work at home environment that we have for our employees and the employees in Scottsdale all got together and made up a neon sign for the entrance that says, we're building a company we've always wanted to work for as you walk in, unbeknownst to anybody in the executive leadership team. And so I share your view. You know, a big part of who we are is, you know, there's a bit of a reverence and and I think, you know, just like independence and in how we think about the kind of business that we want to have for ourselves, for our employees. And uh, and so I share your view. I love to hear that. I'm I'm curious as, as somebody who likes to learn from those who go ahead of Go ahead of me. Have you taken a company public before? Have you been in this? Have you done this? I've never been, been a C. I've never been a CEO taking a company public. I've been part of two companies that have gone public as a senior executive, but uh, but this okay. is the first time. Yeah, as a CEO. Anything as you think reflect back on the journey? What comes to mind? Uh, anything you could share for those of us who who aspire to to do the same thing? Well, I'm a little later in my career. One thing I'll say is I'll never do it again. That's for sure. <laughs> Look, I think that my only piece of advice that I can uh, offer, which is a little tongue in cheek, is uh, try not to launch your IPO into the most turbulent, you know, capital markets environment that has existed for an extended period during my adult life. I remember as things got really messy in kind of March, April, asking the bankers, what's the longest time that the capital markets have been closed? And the bankers said it was 40 weeks in, in 2007, 2008. And I think we were already at that point at 19 weeks. And, and so obviously we outlasted the 40 weeks. My only advice is just don't do it during that kind of period. <laughs> All right. I'll do my best <laughs> to plan around that. So you talked a little bit about your people and the irreverence that they had and the things that they were doing to really take ownership of the company. I think that's that's super powerful. And that sort of lends well to the topic about culture and uh, in particular about, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Most of the guests on our DEI series uh, have been women or people of color, but I also felt like it was important to have, you know, other white male leaders like yourself and me talking about the things that we're doing. So would love to hear, uh, I think you mentioned that, you know, you have quite a diverse employee base already, but how are you guys approaching DE&I at Skyward and, and why is it so important? Yeah. First thing I'd say is that we do have a very diverse workforce. I think we're unique in in the market and that we are a, a national, actually, in fact, a global insurer. We, we write business internationally. But if you looked at the greatest concentration of our employees, Texas, where we're headquartered in Houston, 
Georgia, we have a big concentration. Atlanta happens to be a great market for specialty, and we, you know, have a big concentration. And we're spread all over the United States, you know, as far north as Boston, as far, you know, west in terms of physical offices, Scottsdale. And so we're national in terms of our focus. It so happens that we do actually have a, a very large proportion of our employees are persons of color, you know, maybe just a, a bit of the history of the company that I came into the organization and we had we had a bit of that profile. What I'd say to you about, you know, just generally the broad topic of diversity, I don't know if we set out a diversity agenda as much as kind of a culture agenda that has ended up sort of uh, including various really interesting dimensions of diversity, right? And so for, first of all, I think in general, our environment is is unique. I would say it's a culture that is is uniquely ours. I, you know, even as I launched last last week, I talked, you know, launched in the IPO, I talked about the the unique culture, but the fact that compassion is the core part of of our culture. We're very engaged, a very flat organization, highly transparent. You know, we're unique in the industry in that we've drawn on, you know, the technology world's OKRs as a way to connect our organization top to bottom in terms of, you know, how we focus our priorities. I'll just, and I'll say to you that a big piece of it is, you know, people is a huge orientation in, in our, you know, key objectives and key results. I will share with you that much of our culture, the positive feature of our, of our culture, we're born out of a few things. One is very quickly after I took the job in May of 2020, one of the things I did is I set up a foundation funded by the company and then I handed it over to employees to run it entirely without, you know, management sort of or the company intervening so that the the philanthropic efforts could be focused on, you know, we talk about it in terms of the communities in which, you know, in which we we work and live. And that really is a key focus. Soon thereafter, a, a group asked to form something called SAID, S-A-I-D, which stands for Skyward Awareness, Inclusion, and Diversity Team. And that built a lot of momentum and started partnering with the foundation. And it's taken root in so many different ways. I mean, I, I could just highlight for you that together they've led everything from, you know, efforts around Feeding America, you know, breast cancer awareness, you know, Boots for Troops. You know, I can give you a great example of, of some things that have happened internally around fundraising that I think is, is super interesting, but it became very organic is really what I'd say to you as sort of the starting point. Uh, as a company, we then initiated something where we basically said, we will fund and sponsor employee resource groups, but they can operate entirely autonomous of the company. And, and the only requirement is that we said there has to be a minimum number of X employees and, and X is nine that want to join these employee resource groups. And and so you can imagine that we've had employee resource groups that have gone through everything, including, you know, just mental health. Uh, there's a focus. There's physical health. Unsurprisingly, we have a, a team focused on LGBTQ plus matters. I'll give you a really interesting example about how this all comes together. So the LGBTQ plus team for Pride Month created a limited edition Skyward t-shirt, right? Great thing that they did. Really creative, beautiful, a very beautiful design. Put it out in the company store with uh, all proceeds going towards a charity focused on use and LGBTQ plus matters. We had something like 90 plus percent of our employees buy one or more of the t-shirts, raising a huge amount of money, which is- wow. 
which is indicative of how engaged our workforce is in support of each other. By the way, like if you just go look at LinkedIn about the matters last week regarding our IPO, what you will see is literally thousands of pictures of our employees all over the country thoroughly engaged in, in the IPO launch. It's, we just have a very engaged culture. So you find it manifesting itself in so many different ways in our organization. But the difference being is that, you know, like I'm not in any way involved. I just created the environment to which the culture, the green shoots of the culture took root. And now it is very organic, very self-directed. You know, we provide support in terms of financial resourcing, but we get out of the way. And the said team really is a the, probably the catalyst for our organization. And we have something like of our 450 employees, we have something like 40 members who are, who are part of the said team, which, you know, which in itself, you know, talks to sort of the, the interest of our employees around the topic. I mean, the, the stories are incredible, right? I, I appreciate your humility in saying, you know, you don't do much, but but sort of set set the path for it. I mean, that's that's a critical part of it. So kudos to you for doing that. But also, you know, I've had other people on the show who've talked about you know, what their leadership team is doing, which is important because a lot of times for some of these other companies, you know, that it really does have to come from the top. But what all of them talk about is how, you know, maybe the support comes from the top, but the effort and the action has to come from the bottom up, right? You can't force culture on people. You can you can give them a path. You can set a tone. You can give them some freedom, but you, ha- you really have to empower uh, the people to own, own the business, own the culture. And I appreciate the the language you use around it in particular, which is important and just referring to, you know, DEI is a part of culture, right? DEI isn't, isn't necessarily culture. Culture encompasses more than that, but, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, I think are critical components of a culture. And when you can create an environment that supports, you know, diverse group makes them feel included and makes it, you know, feel like a fair environment, then you're going to have a lot of success, which I think is evidenced by, your IPO and, and the price that came behind it. So thank good, you. Good lessons. I think, yeah, of course. I mean, good lessons for anybody listening, right? Is, you know, focus on your people, support, you know, hire good people, support them, set the path, set the strategy and guide them and then support them as, as things change, which is another yeah. important topic. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I would say, I'd say the other part of it is that, is that, you know, as a, as a leader, you know, I'll oftentimes say that, you know, part of what leaders do is obviously they set culture, but in the end, you know, resource allocation is the ultimate role of a leader, right? It's like, where where are you going to put your company's time, effort, resources, including your own, by the way? You know, I recognize the CEO of the company, then my actions are pretty visible, right? So, you know, I try as much as I can within the context of my own time allocation to commit, right? Visible time to things that we're doing, right? And so we are really big on on things related to anything that's around providing food assistance for those in need. So we have regular efforts around, you know, local food pantries and just providing food in, in our communities. And probably in my coming up on two and a half years, I've probably spent three or four days at the Houston Food Bank you know, packing meals for families along with our team, you know, been involved obviously in, in a range of other things I happen to be, I like to run. So, you know, if we do something related to breast cancer awareness, I tend to be involved in the running initiatives and, you know, and, and raising money that way, but you kind of pick and choose. And, and to the extent that, 
you're just side by side with your colleagues doing yeah. things that reinforce the company's commitment. And it's not to be gratuitous. I mean, it's it is genuine. It's 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 God honest and I'm that I'm interested in it. But it I think it has a, you know, people do look to their leaders to watch their behavior and how they role model things. And to the extent that you can you can do that and you're, you know, there's nothing different about how I engage and anybody else, how, how anybody else engages. That's immensely valuable for setting the tone in an organization. And and certainly I see my responsibility in that regard. Yeah, I think the genuineness of it is important, right? I mean, you're not you're not inventing a culture that doesn't right. doesn't that you don't identify with and that doesn't doesn't resonate with you personally. So um, exactly. So that's great. The other part about leadership, which which I was kind of alluding to just now, was the need to manage through change, right? Which you know you, you're in a great place now, but you know the market may change. It may get better. It may get worse. The environment may change. You know, technology may show up that that changes the world, which it often does, and so. You know, a big topic for for me and for us as a business over the last few years has been change management because this is an industry that has an opportunity to change for the better, and not just on the culture side of things, but on the operational side and the efficiency side and the adoption of technology side. But getting people to through those changes can be can be shocking to the system, right? The change yep. management is is the practice of change management is based on the five stages of grief, right? Which is what you. <laughs> shockingly is what people deal with with you know when they're going through the loss of a loved one and so when you're going through operational change the the thought is the same right you're you're attached to something you're comfortable with something you're familiar with something and now you're potentially losing it or it's changing and so there's a journey that an organization needs to go through not even just an individual but an organization needs to go through together and so you know, you've undoubtedly been a part of either leading or or driving change, either at Skyward or otherwise. I'm curious, you know, when you think about change and change management, what comes to mind? How do you think about success? What are some things you've put in place to be to drive the results you're looking for? Yeah. So, uh, well, fortunately, uh, or just for better or for worse, you know, you're a byproduct of your experiences. I have had an immensely diverse uh, set of experiences before becoming the CEO. So I, you know, 20 years in strategy consulting, I, I ran, you know, the global insurance practice for a major consultancy. I was in the business of advising and helping our clients go through change. There's one thing about advising on it versus, you know, I, I describe it like being sure. the difference between, you know, kind of being the chicken and the pig, right. For breakfast, the chicken gives the eggs, but the, you know, the pig's given the ham, right. One you're all in on one, you're kind of contributor. So kind of went from, okay. went from being a chicken, you okay. know, spent uh, spent over 10 years at one organization building and running a large specialty business from scratch inside of a very large organization, which forced a lot of change, learned a lot from that, uh, learned a lot about myself. Uh, like you, I actually, I did a three-year off-ramp. I you know, started in venture capital, and then I followed one of those investments in as a CEO. So I got to sort of sit in your seat and sell into very large, very sophisticated organizations, which taught me a lot about what what I don't want to be, to be honest, uh, sitting, you know, like how difficult it can be to, to activate change. Look, I think once we got through the first couple, three quarters in this organization with me at the helm, which had a lot to do with getting out of businesses that didn't meet sort of our, we have a strategy we call rule your niche, an idea about being a top quartile underwriter and everything that we do and exiting businesses that we didn't have that clear line of sight or a position to do that and, and focusing on the places where we did and investing in that. The only thing I can say about our company 
is that our leaders fully get that change is a constant thing. Now, I think that that there is no discomfort with change and and particularly technological change. So here's a few facts for you. So we're today we're about 450 employees. When I joined, uh, when I joined, we were about 360 employees. So we've grown our employee population by about 25%. Yet half the employees are new to the company since I've joined, right? So we had a huge undertaking to align our, mm-hmm. our company to, to our strategy. One of the things I quickly learned is unlike some of our, our competitors who will have larger competitors, in particular, have separate organizations that are that are you know venture capital groups, places where they test new technologies before they get incorporated. I'm like, we're not doing any of that stuff, right? Every single one of our our underwriting division leaders is responsible for understanding and being informed about the the ecosystems of technology that are affecting their world, whether it be construction for our construction lead, or you know energy for our energy lead. And we have put a huge focus around technology as central to how we're going to compete and win. So we're we're in the high acuity, very complex end of the the specialty insurance market. We're a big believer that technology can widen the aperture of our claims and claims our underwriting and claims professionals in terms of their ability to have better fidelity around risk selection, pricing, you know, fidelity and, and accuracy, and then ultimately adjudicating to optimal claims outcomes. And we've invested very heavily in that. And I'll give you a couple of data points that you'll find interesting. So uh, as part of our net roadshow, we recorded demos of a bunch of our technology to show investors. The feedback was unilaterally a bit of a wow, not the least of which is our sort of core Mm. business intelligence platform, SkyBI, where we have the ability to see and sense and respond in ways that uh, many of our competitors don't. That's one great data point. Another great data point is that in the second quarter of this past year, our chief technology officer hosted two back-to-back days, three-hour sessions called Tech Activation, where he partnered somebody from his organization with various business leaders to demonstrate to the whole company what we were doing for technology, right? Hmm. And so when our head of professional liability, Jim Moormile, demonstrates how we're using uh, predictive analytics and RPA to automate a very large portion of our, you know, of the renewal book that we have in professional liability. And the fellow who's demoing it from our technology organization pushed a button, this is on video, and leans back and puts his hands behind his head as they see all this, you know, this this fancy, you know, sort of you're watching the, the everything auto-populate in RPA. And you're seeing the fidelity of our predictive analytics that we we find kind of the right the right risks that have to be kicked out and reviewed by an underwriter, our most valuable resource, and you know those that we can we can run right through and where we put them in terms of price tiering and everything else. Everybody goes, how do I get that? Or when hmm. you know when Ed Shiel, our head of specialty transportation, shows how we're using predictive analytics and we've gotten down to the fidelity of identifying the top quintile of risks that have half of the frequency of claims versus the bottom quintile and 40% lower severity. Everybody says, how do I I get that? And the list goes on and on and on and on to the point where, you know, we don't have any biases about how we do it. Our biases are pick the most leveraged points and get focused on those. And we'll surround our leaders with people who can help them better understand and then what they can do for themselves. 
And it's been a wildly successful formula. So we do fail, by the way. Um, we fail in, in our, you know, we've done a lot, for example, on fraud analytics in claims. Much of it failed before we finally got it right. And so, you know, but the fact is that as 450 people, very flat organization, a CEO who's immensely minded towards using technology around those three things, improving fidelity yep. of risk selection, pricing, and, and optimal claims outcomes, we are in nearly every category in which we c- compete. We're already at a very functional state in some cases. Even if we only have the green shoots of technology, we tend to be ahead of many of our competitors in the way that we're using new forms of risk data and advanced analytics to improve our performance. And uh, and I think it's really a wonderful feature, core part of yeah. it. I mean, obviously, as a technologist, the the stories like that get me excited. As what I'm trying to glean from that is the, the change side of it, right? And two things I heard really stuck out. One was is the people side of it, right? I know you said you added 25%, but roughly half of the employees are new. So I, what I'm taking out of that is you've you've brought in people who are. I'm reading between the lines here, but you've brought in people who are open to change, maybe a little bit more tech forward, and sort of interested in driving change, right? They're hopefully they're coming into a new job and they're excited about making a difference. And the other thing I took away was the show and tell thing, right? Like you show people what something can do magically, right? And you and you promote that and you advocate for that. And all of a sudden, you know, hopefully fire starts to catch and people say, like, you know, I want that. I want that too. So exactly. Um, you know, a great example is uh, tomorrow we've been obviously in lockdown for the longest time. Then right. we came in and got out of lockdown, but people were, you know, we weren't back to our fully functional state. For the next two days, we have our first ever all-in senior leadership team meeting for two days here in Houston, 50 people coming in. And once we get past kind of myself and our CFO setting up kind of our performance on 22 and our plans for 23, almost everything is about the success stories, various dimensions into the success stories of our eight underwriting divisions you know, everything ranging from the use of technology to do the things that we talked about to how has we been incredibly successful attracting the A-plus talent in our industry and and the great success stories around that to how little company of a, you know, a billion one seems to punch way, way, way above our weight in terms of our kind of marketplace awareness and presence, you know, talking about all things we're doing marketing, big focus on, you know, kind of all the professional development things. And what's going to happen through that is all that's being presented by various members of our senior leadership team, inevitably, other members of the senior leadership team will say, how do I get more of that and do more of that? How do I get you know, the talent acquisition team focused on my being able to pipeline the next A-plus talent team that we're going to go after, et cetera, et cetera, the way that this other part of the organization. And in that, it's almost like a competition for resource. But in a really positive way. I don't mean like in an I win, you lose. We've been doing it as sort of not an I win, you lose. It's a way to just sort of do I win, you win. But I I think that that goes to your change conversation. Like, you know, people want to move the organization forward. Everybody wants to be the person who's standing on stage telling others about those success stories, right? It's just, it's true. It's a human nature. People like to be winners. Yeah. And so that's that's really that's part of the way that we've in, we are infusing this into the company. We've been doing it virtually. Now we're going to do it physically in person. You got a big 
couple of days ahead of you, it sounds like, which which sounds exciting. So I, I, I really do appreciate you making some time and being here with me. My last question, which is really about tying this back to, to who we are and what we do, but enlightenment, which is, is part of the, the title of the show, The Enlightened Agent, is defined as the state of having knowledge or understanding. And so in an effort to enlighten our audience, just is, is there any knowledge you haven't shared that you can drop on on me or our guests about either DEI or culture or changing operations that you feel like has to get out into the world? I don't know if I'm in a position. I'm not like, you know, I don't think like guru or thought leader, you know, this divine wisdom. What I can tell you, I can share again a story that I think says everything, which is I'm blessed to have, I have two great kids, uh, both uh, live in your neck of the woods, they're both in New York City. One works in data science. One now is uh, working for, you know, one of the preeminent strategy consulting firms. But my daughter, the one who's working for the one of the consulting firms uh, at the time was working at an insurance company. And okay. she, when I took the job, she was just out of, just graduated from university and she was chirping in my ear, right, about all the things that I need to do as a CEO through her lens, a very Gen Z lens, I, I, right. I, I would say. But she was right because these are all the things that wouldn't be the stuff that I would focus on, right? I'd focus hmm. on numbers, growth. I mean, all the things that, that you know, and I, I was sharing with you before we started, you know, I joined a week before the events surrounding George Floyd. And, you know, right after that, my daughter was, was in my ear saying, you really have to say something to your company. And this was long before the industry started to, to make public statements. Yep. And, and and she was right, by the way. And I'm a week and a half into the job. And the first communication, the first all-employee communication uh, since the first day that I joined was to share with people my own personal reaction to that and that how we are going to be an organization that embraces diversity uh, in all regards and that is going to be compassionate and tolerant of the full range of views and that this is a really difficult moment for not for just our company of course but for society more more broadly and and it's impossible to watch that stuff and not be deeply hurt by it yep. and and she was right by the way and me making that statement as kind of the first non-business thing that I said to the company yeah. had a profound impact on setting the tone around culture. And I would never, like, I would not have thought about that myself, right? right. Because I needed to be reminded of it, how important it was. And yeah. so I don't know what the lesson to be taken from that is other than, you know, sometimes really smart people don't actually see everything, right? And there are these moments where, you can really set the tone for a company in ways that I would never have imagined when I took the job. And, you know, all I'd say is just make yourself, avail yourself to that kind of input because it can have a profound impact on you to the extent that you do. I think the takeaway from that is is, is something you know, very specific around equity, right? You want to listen to everybody, right? And everybody should have you know, an equal voice or at least some voice, right? And so what you did there was listen to the perspective of a, a different age range, right? And so you think about diversity, right? It's not just race and gender, it's it's age as well, right? And so the voice of the the 20 somethings really spoke to you, right? I and mean, thankfully, you know, it was your daughter and you had a lot of respect for her, but like, but also what what she said clearly resonated with you, otherwise you wouldn't have followed through with it. And and you trust that she probably, you know, represents 
other people her age, not everybody, but at least a lot of people her age. And so, and clearly that served you well. So I think great lesson for, for all the leaders out there is to just keep your ears open and listen to your people and, and listen to your customers. And, you know, you don't always have the right answers. So, so be open to, to learning and growing. And man, this is, Andrew, this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time, especially after, right after the IPO and before your leadership meeting. So I'm, I'm super appreciative of, of you for doing this and for being on the show with us and for sharing those stories. A lot of good lessons in there, a lot of good stories, and um, look forward to seeing you around, maybe hearing some more stories and watching you succeed and grow. So thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it, Jason. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much.